Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Nicole Powell, co-host of New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Very honored and happy to interview the author of a seminal work that converges in dialogues across several disciplines, Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, author of The Dark Fantastic, Race and the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. Dr. Thomas is Associate Professor in the Literacy, Culture, and International Educational Division at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education a former Detroit public school teacher and National Academy of Education Spencer Foundation postdoctoral fellow. She's an expert on diversity in children's literature, youth media, and fan studies. Dr. Thomas, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, of course. So let's jump right into the interview. So you give readers a pretty comprehensive definition of the dark fantastic in your introduction, indicating the discipline's um, and who, what informs the discipline and who it's in conversation with. So for listeners, what is a dark fantastic and how does it converge with Afrofuturism or speculative fiction? And how does it differentiate from those genres? So the dark fantastic is my term for the role that race plays in the Western imagination. A lot of work that preceded mine focused rightly on Afrofuturistic um, speculative production. So um, for uh, for instance, there was Itasha Womack's uh, huge book, Afrofuturism, that came out. There were also books by Kenitra Brooks, Andre Carrington. Um, When you begin naming names, um, sometimes you forget folks. Um, Isaiah Lavender, whose book I read after (laughs) I submitted The Dark Fantastic. So there were a lot of books that came out during the first half of the 21st century. Um, Andre's book sort of circled in on the territory that I wanted to cover in The Dark Fantastic. Um, While I really appreciated all the... um, amazing work done on Black authors, Black filmmakers, and Black creatives who made fantastic visions for us possible. The fact remained that most speculative narrative was produced by people who weren't us. And yet there were still Black characters in those stories. And we have all read those characters. We all viewed those characters. And there's so much of that compared to the smaller numbers of um, liberatory, Black fantastic and Afrofuturistic narratives. Now, of course, the situation is improving. um, But I wanted to look at the role that race was playing in recent Western um, I guess I shouldn't even say Western, maybe English language blockbuster stories that many of our children, teens and young adults had consumed. And my thesis is that these narratives were shaping the ways that they saw race and Black people. 
So you, a little bit further on in the book, you talk about the role of the monster in speculative fiction and how the monster can come to be in alignment with how people of color can view themselves um, in speculative fiction as being like ostracized or being minoritized and marginalized. Um, so how can you speak a little bit more to the role of the monster in your work and in um, the, the works of other speculative fiction? Yes. So the monster as metaphor for the racialized other has has existed in the West um, since the late Middle Ages. One book that came out as I was revising was um, Stamped from the Beginning, which won the National Book Award a few years ago by Dr. Ibram Kendi. Um, and it definitely positions the origins of our modern conce- uh, conceptualizations of race in the late Middle Ages. So during the late Middle Ages, Europe had been devastated by the Black Death. So the bubonic plague had killed a third of its citizens. And it was really a cultural backwater. If you look at all the other civilizations on every other continent, everybody else was thriving 600 years ago. And so you had these, you know, exotic dark others. This is from the late Middle Ages, um, post-Black Death. Um, middle age perspective, middle ages perspective in Europe. So you know you have the um, efforts to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula that have been going on for a thousand years. So Spain, what's now Spain and Portugal, was controlled by the Moors who were a mixed race um, Islamic people. And then of course, um, blocking the way to the East and the spice trade was the Ottoman Empire. So you have brown and black people from beyond Europe's frontiers that begin to haunt the imagination. And then as, again, this is Dr. Kendi, who again, I wish I had um, had his book while I was um, first coming up with a theory, talks about how um, the first travelers and explorers who went to Africa first began to talk about Black people and sell those tales back home. And that was not, so our mo- that was not, exactly our modern conceptualization of blackness, but it was the seed that grew, um, grew later, took root and, you know, a billion souls, more billions of souls um, were held in the wake to borrow a term from Christina Sharp. I, I feel like I'm just quoting everybody, um, were held in the wake of that. So that's where it all began. And so we first were the exotic stranger from, you know, um, if you look at medieval texts, and then we became the exploitable other as the new world was discovered, um, so-called discovered, it was there for you know eternity before mm-hmm. European um, conquest and settler colonialism, um, and that enriched Europe. Th- that um, the um, colonization of the new world was exactly what helped Europe get out of the li- late Middle Ages and birth our modern world, and. Um, led to the enslavement of millions of West and Central Africans. And that's where it all began. 
Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that, like, during that time period, you know, like, the Enlightenment is seen as, like, a time of objectivity and, like, theory and, like, a focus on science, yet it's still used to, like, all this pseudoscience, which is used to, like, to, to further colonial projects, really, and to say that, like, people of color are are monsters and are like savage and we should be conquering them and like using this fake science, even though it's like a focus on real science quotation marks, it's using like this pseudoscience to like further conquest and violence. It's so interesting. Absolutely. So um, your work also questions who is actually the monster in these narratives and taking back narratives for people of color and for black people and repositioning ourselves in narratives. And that really made me think a lot about Toni Morrison, who you cite throughout you know, your book and her concept of the site of memory, which basically is a site or artifact or memorial that shapes how we understand our histories and usually is employed to affirm hegemonic and oppressive ways of knowing and thinking. But Emily Towns, she builds on this concept with like counter memories, which help us re-remember history in a way that underscores truth and the perspectives of people who have been minoritized. So how does your work serve as a counter memory in the genre of speculative fiction? Oh, thank you for that. Um, I need to get into Emily Towns' work. It sounds fascinating because I wish I had actually cited Toni Morrison on rememory um, and thinking about the ways in which memories shape consciousness. So a memory isn't. So I was reading a lot of European theory, and um, some critics of the book have said, "Okay, she's." looking at race in the Western imagination and she's citing, you know, sort of white male, um, most fantasy theorists, but you know, I'll do better with the next book. <laughs> um, I was thinking about, um, recurs, um, um, history, memory, imagination. Okay. I think I'm going to, um, stop trying to remember all of my citations and later, but, um, he, you know, I was really thinking about the fact that memory is not actually, you know, a correct facsimile of the past. So it's not, exactly the past. What we choose to remember and the way that the brain remembers is different than actual events that happened in the past. And I think we're finding that out because of the age of um, social media, the internet and cell phones. So we have these mass cultural um, happenings where somebody will have a cell phone video of some outrageous incident. It could be racist, could be sexist, could be a combination of many different things. And we each see that video according to who we are and the way that our consciousness has been shaped to receive these um, these images or these you know impressions of what actually happened. So it's not just it's not that people are necessarily lying when they're looking at a video, but perspective is something I'm so fascinated with coming out of the dark fantastic because perspective is you know like we could all be at the scene of an accident, but because of our angle, because of our relationship to the people who are, you know, in the car, bystanders, first responders, we're all going to have a different perception of that. And I think that's dialed up so much more when we're thinking about race and the founding atrocities of the nation. So, you know, enslavement, um, the near genocide of native and indigenous and first nations people. So, you know, it's, 
it's not just that we all have you know, the same perspective. I want to make that clear. It's just that there's the perspective of those who have, who are, I don't want to say have agency because I don't want to imply that people who are oppressed don't have agency because if we say they don't have agency, it takes away their humanity. But I think power is the dimension that shapes our perspective. And we all have unequal stakes in the fantastic because of who those stories interpolate us as. So whether you are interpolated as the monster, you could be as innocent as Rue, but if the paint by numbers rubric that still exists in fantasy says that you have to be the monster, then your death is going to be seen as necessary for the functioning of the plot. It's not Mm -hmm. going to be as, oh my God, this is an innocent girl and she loses her life so that the protagonist who is just like most protagonists in most children's literature, most fairy tales, most fantasy and science fiction, you know, her death is a necessary thing so that the protagonist can fulfill their goal. So I think that perspective is this huge dimension of storytelling that we're missing when we're thinking about racial racial justice, not only in media, but in education. Right. So thinking about multiplicity of perspectives and their differing levels of power and the ways that they um, consume cultural products, but also in the way that they produce cultural products reminded me of um, your statement about network communities and um, how that allows for, in your words, participatory turns and sharing ideas and what that means for traditionally and presently excluded voices in the speculative fiction genre. So can you speak more about those network communities and how multiplicity of voices and like fan communities add to the genre or add to the work? Absolutely. Participatory networks online have changed everything. Um, Well, maybe they haven't changed things as fast as you and I would like, but I do take an optimistic stance toward the potential of social media and networked participatory communities to shift this a bit. And I think the key dimension is that reader response is now crowdsourced, amplified, and sped up more than any other time in the recent past. So that me- that means that, okay, so 50 years ago, maybe that's too long. Let's just go back 25 years. So I was in my late teens 25 years ago. There would have been absolutely no way for me to let um, the author of a book I was reading, the director or showrunner of television, programming that I enjoyed, or of course, a film's director or screenwriter, there was no way to know um, or for me to communicate to them that I loved their stories other than writing a letter. Um, There was no email, um, or if it was, it existed on college and university campuses and was used mainly by scientists. Um, There was no, because that was 19, 25 years ago, it was 1994, right? 1995 was the year of the internet. So I was 17 and 94. 
Um, I would have had to write a letter to um, an author. I would have had to write or call the television station. Um, I might have been able to try to fly to LA at exorbitant 1990s flight prices and go talk to the director. But do you see the problem here? So I'm a generation Xer. We're all bound by time. So people who say generations don't matter, I think they don't know what they're talking about. Because no matter how young my perspective is, um, I'm just finishing up my first young adult novel, but I'm 42 now. You can't have your 90s in the 2020s if you're Generation Z. So you can, you know, rock retro. It is not the 90s anymore. Clinton is not president. Do you see what I mean? So we're all bound by time. There was a limit to what my generation of blurs and future professors and scholars and creatives could do to let people know about our consternation. Of course, we invented hip hop. So, you know, we lived through the war on drugs. We lived through the early phases of mass incarceration. We were mad as hell. We didn't have broadcast social media. So that's why I say millennials and Generation Z have been able to force change in media, not as fast as we'd like, you know, these um, tropes these um, caricaturizations and these racist stereotypes have existed in um, all media, not just fantastic for centuries, more than a half millennium. But now when a director puts out a problematic film or an author encodes stereotypes in their new fantasy novel, people are going to go to Twitter and Instagram and other forms of new media, and they're going to clap back. Um, Tumblr's less popular now, but people certainly use Tumblr to clap back against representations they had issues with. And the flip side of the coin that doesn't get as much attention is that they also use new media to advocate for the kinds of representations that they want to see. And that's new. That's different. That's what I would have loved when I was a child and teenager, but didn't get into, in, um, there was not the internet um, until my 20s. And broadcast social media really you know, came into being in my very late 20s when I was almost 30. So that is the difference. And that is what's new today. Is that what you refer to when you talk about convergence culture and like these different forms of media and how it allows for new spaces for folks to consume the culture to contribute um, to the discourse? So convergence culture, I... That is exactly what it is. It's what Henry Jenkins and his colleagues have said. You know, all these forms of media are beginning to collide. So another thing that was true a generation ago was that, you know, there was the world of television and you would see certain actors would do TV and certain screenwriters would write for television, right? But then there were other actors that did film and they would write for film. And sometimes you would have authors whose work would appear on the big or small screen, you know, and those were generally the best sellers. But Ne'er did the twain, actually, I don't, the thrain. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, an old English word. Ne'er would the thrain meet. You would not be, you didn't have much crossover. But now we know that the big media corporations are all about franchising. So when they, they look at each end of a, of, um, a narrative, transmedia narrative, to figure out how many other ways can they 
tell that story and market it. And the way that younger audiences are set up to consume media, they don't feel that they've ha- they have the whole story or they don't feel they're a true fan of that story unless they are getting all pieces of that narrative across mode and genre and uh, form. So if you are a Marvel fan, of course you're going to watch the Marvel movies, but you're also going, you're also anticipating um, the new Disney streaming channel so you can get new Marvel shows. Um, if you are a fan worth your salt, you're actually reading Marvel comics or you should be reading <laughs> Um, comics of all kinds, not just Marvel. Um, there are novelizations of um, in some franchises. There's also the merchandising, which I didn't talk about at all in The Dark Fantastic. And I'm hoping that a young scholar out there listening um, would pick that piece of it up. I feel like I've just scratched the surface and um, a rising generation of scholars is going to just really blow this area of work open. Um and so you're 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 immersed in all of this storytelling, but you are also consuming and spending a ton more money in order to get all pieces of that narrative than we would have 20, 30, or 40 years ago. You see what so, I'm saying? I, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. New new paths for folks to contribute that weren't present before in the genre. But only I, because companies think they can make money off of it. So it's right. not out of the goodness of their hearts. It's just that, oh boy, people are so into this stuff these days that they, you know, won't feel as if their knowledge is complete, you know, unless they can read the books, read the comics, watch any associated television show. Okay, if it's a mm. successful show, there'll be a movie. You have to hop online. You need to have the merchandise, wear your t-shirt, wear your jewelry. You know, So this has become a billion dollar enterprise. And that's why speculative storytelling, you know, science fiction, fantasy, and comics have eaten Hollywood because of the transmedia potential there. Or it's almost like those things... It's almost like those things serve as like legitimacy or credentials. And if you don't have, if you aren't well-versed in all the different forms of media, like the TV, the movie version, you don't have the t-shirts, you don't have the merchandise, the figurines, then you're not like, you know, so it's, it's interesting because it seems as if like capitalism could exclude people from being like legitimate fans almost. Ah, you're circling in on something really interesting. There we go. And this is something I, again, I really wish I had pulled out of the dark fantastic, but again, um, that won't be my last foray into this area. I hope to write more about this because you, you mentioned that, you know, capitalism has really incentivized people to get all parts of the story. So um, some people have said that fandom is like religion these days, you know, because people are more secular now. Now. And so, but, you know, as a religious person myself, I'm not really sure that that is exactly it. I think that people have always wanted more of a story. So, um, I mean, if you look at old, uh, I shouldn't say old stories, I don't want to offend anyone listening, but, you know, for instance, older stories, you know, one of the first modern media fandoms was Star Trek. Um, but even before then, there were um, people who eagerly awaited the next installment of their favorite Victorian um, author's tale. Before that, all around the world, our deep ancestors sat around campfires and all 
all over the place. And we listen to the storytellers tell us about the world around us. And we always wanted more of the story. A good storyteller never gives you everything. And so I think that, you know, capitalism's impulse to, you know, squeeze every dollar out of every rock on the every atom on the planet has um, sort of figured something out about the human heart. And the human heart is um, all about stories. We fall in love with stories. We fall in love with people who don't even exist in these stories. You know, there's no such person as Hermione Granger. But you couldn't have told me that at 21, 22 years old, when I was far too old to fall in love with this children's book and to see myself in this, you know, too smart character who always spoke up first and was super annoying um, because she always wanted to, you know, get the answer right. There's something that's deep in the human spirit and in the human heart that longs for and needs stories. And there's something about those stories with magic that I think just does it for us. And I think like there's something about being able to, you talk about this in your book, but being able to relate to the stories um, and how that relates to the fantastical. You talk a lot about the hesitation moment in fantasy and that how that signals fantasy and how um, you are able to, the moment of the hesitation moment where you don't 100% believe <laughs> that signifies the fantastical. And another question on that is, for people of color, people who don't identify or align with the identities of the people in the narratives, how is that hesitation moment made real? So you can be really inspired or astounded by what's fantastical in the work, but then you're like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm not like this character because I'm, you know, I don't identify with them. I don't look like them. Is, do you think that aligns kind of with the hesitation moment? I think it does. Um, I think in the book, um, I mentioned that I really would love uh, reader response research on this because we truly don't know um, as much as we need to know in the digital age about what happens when readers encounter the fantastic. So I, um, along with my graduate students at Penn, are launching a new study where we want to get some talk back from fans who are between eight, the ages of 18 and 30, because that's millennials um, and early first wave generation Z. And um, they were the first generation to grow up completely during the digital age. So, um, you know, there were early computers for Generation X, but I don't count us because we just weren't networked. Um, you know, the oldest Generation Xers are um, Michelle Obama's age, 1964, then our generation ends in 1980. And then if you came out of high school in 1998, yeah, you had dial-up internet, but you didn't have a cell phone as a teenager. That's very different. So anyway, one of the things that we need to know is what actually does happen when different kinds of people encounter different kinds of people, places, plots, and situations in the fantastic. So, and what causes people to identify or disidentify with characters. And here's something that I am uh, curious about. It seems to me that audiences of color more readily identify with white characters than the reverse. 
Mm-hmm. It seems we hear a lot. And if you look at um, the pages of um, the web pages for Amazon Goodreads, I would invite you to look at some of the recent um, authors of color who are non-Hugo winning or non, you know, so not the super famous people because those people are geniuses. Like we have um, N.K. Jemison, P. DeJelly Clark, um, some, you know, others, um, Tommy Adeyemi and others. Um, I mean, just the few young, middle grade, young adult and adult fantasies and science fiction uh, novels that have appeared over the past 10 years. Um, if I had more time, I would do my own. I was trained in discourse analysis. Look at the kinds of terminology that readers from outside that person's culture, often white, will leave on those reviews. We see a lot about likability and we see a lot about relatability. They tell us they don't like the characters or they can't relate to the characters. We hear that so much. And so we, you know, it leads a scholar to wonder, what is it about the character they don't like? What is it, what is it about the character that they can't relate to? Because, you know, for a lot of the young adult narratives, the children are middle class. So it's not like they're, you know, they grew up like I did on the west side, of deep west side of Detroit, you know. So they're just, they're, there aren't any class differences with, you know, most of the, you know, readers and them. Um, they are um, in the same situations as white protagonists in fantasy books. What is it that makes them not relatable? And we just don't have any empirical research on that. And so that's what I would like to do next, because um, I'm not in the humanities, although I was partially trained in the um, as a humanist. I came out of the joint program in English and education at the University of Michigan, um, where I did my um, PhD. But um, in education, my colleagues have been so generous about the dark fantastic. They bought it. They supported it. But now I need to you know, interview some folks and do some qualitative research and find out what are people saying about their experiences in these transmedia worlds. Right. And I think that reminds me a lot of like desirability politics. And like you said, that's a question for further research, but what makes these characters so undesirable or like unlikable um, to mass readers? And Speaking of likability of characters, so your the the framework of the book focuses on four different characters: Gwen in Merlin, Rue in Hunger Games, Bonnie in Vampire Diaries, and Hermione in Harry Potter. So, why did you select those four characters to analyze, and how do they help inform readers' understandings of the Dark Fantastic? Well, I selected those four characters because those were four characters I enjoyed, four fandoms I appreciated and, um, you know, and participated in, even if they were not always comfortable for fans of color. Um, And they were also um, just, um, they were um, mass media franchises during the first two decades of the 21st century. It was before what I'm calling, and I don't know if others will join me, the Afrofuturistic turn in mass uh, media and entertainment. So like the Black Panther era, which I hate to, you know, use Black Panther as a blanket umbrella um, to refer to what happened 
because, of course, Black folks have been creating speculative narrative since before we landed on these shores. But I do think that mass media realized that they were leaving a lot of money on the table by completely excluding Black characters beyond token sidekicks, best friends, and patsies. Um, I hope that's not a bad word. Is that a bad word? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> what is what does that mean? So like somebody who's set up to be like, you know, almost like not a, a real character, but like, you know, something you can knock over or I think mm. that's what it is. Like an okay. object for the yeah, protagonist. Yeah, like objectified. I was trying to, you know, speak right. more casually. I don't know. You could cut that part out if you want. Um, <laughs> um but yes, yeah, so black character. Um, okay, after the Black Panther turn, we're seeing much more. Um, even the announcement of Black Panther being a movie um, led to other amazing stories being greenlit. So we have everything now from Black Lightning, um, Luke Cage, although it's not. Um, on the air anymore. Netflix decided to cancel it after two seasons, but we had it. Um, Star Trek Discovery, which is one of its most diverse offerings. And this is a science fiction series that truly was groundbreaking when it came to diversity back in the day, although imperfect. Um, so we've had a lot starting in the second half of the 2010s going forward. However, everybody 18 to 30 grew up during the 90s and really the double O's and the 10s, the early 10s. And they were shaped by those huge franchises, Harry Potter, Twilight, The Hunger Games, and everything else that was greenlit in its wake. And that stuff tended to be pretty formulaic, pretty tropey, but it was super influential. And it's going to influence a generation of creators going forward. So um, I'm just curious about... Um, I was curious about the patterns that I saw in those stories. Um, and I saw some alike patterns, patterns that, you know, um, were alike. And, um, I saw, um, black characters in those narratives being marginalized within the narrative. And then that got echoed. No, let me see. Okay. Black characters were marginalized in the narrative then that was amplified when the narrative would move from page to screen. So the black character was even more marginalized because what happened was what you, what millennial young women pointed out about the hate you give and perhaps some generation Z, you know, where um, there's a character um, who's one way in a book and then Hollywood <laughs> takes the narrative over. So you have colorism that happens. You have, um, an attempt to make that character more palatable for a mass audience. But then at the, at the end of the day, it fails because as you saw in the book, young fans and audiences, um, especially white fans and audiences, some of them will just reject that character anyway. Say the character is not likable, not relatable, undeserving in the way of the protagonist's goals. We just saw this consistently over and over and over and over. And not just those four narratives, but across um, mass media narratives of the first two decades of the 21st century. And that matters. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, it's interesting that the characters are all Black girls also, all Black women. You talk about this in your book too, but 
for listeners, why was it important for you to have folks who, or characters that you analyze who are Black girls? Well, the, um, and okay, I'm going to say something that is a marketing truism in young adult fiction, although I don't know that we have done enough research to know this is true. By far, the majority of consumers of young adult fiction are female identified, either teens or um, young adult women or not so adult women. So, um, and that's just self-identified women. So perhaps cis and trans. Um, And so um, therefore the characters in those stories tend to be characters that will appeal to that audience. So you'll have, if you have a black character, she will be cast in the best friend role. If she moves out of that role and ends up in a role where she's not seen to be, uh, I'm sorry, if she's, she ends up in a role where she's not seen as worthy by the majority of that young audience or YA narrative audience, there's backlash. So we certainly saw that with the BBC's Merlin, but you see that every time. You saw it with... Um, Currently, you're, you've, you've seen it in the Flash fandom, although that's comics. DCTV was marketed to the same, you know, sort of teen um, novel to TV audience that, you know, we saw with Pretty Little Liars and Gossip Girl and some of those other um, stories a decade ago, right? So, um, yes, you end up having to appeal to that audience. And so therefore black girls are marginalized. And until recently, black boys were non-existent. There were, and especially during the 2000s and the first half of the 2010s, you just didn't have any black boys. Now you're starting to see that change because of the Marvel verse. I really, I think we just have to give it credit because there were just, you know, there are so many of these fictional towns <laughs> where these stories are set. They don't have any. There's one <laughs> black family, and they only have girls. Like they don't make boys. So it's it's really sad. And then if the boy appears, I mean, I'm thinking of the Vampire Diaries, which ran for eight seasons. He always gets killed. So you almost hate mm-hmm. it to see. You know, it's like yes, Bonnie's going to break away from the Salvatore brothers. They're giving her a brother love interest of her own. And then all of a sudden, you He's just gone. know what's going to happen to him. He's gone. It's like, how many episodes did the, the one who lasted the longest last? So, you know, it's just a point of frustration. And then we have to ask, what does that do for Black girl audiences who are watching that? And how does that treat, how does that teach everybody else? How does that teach us how to treat each other? So if the black girl's always marginalized, if she's the hell and she's like, oh, I'm going to sacrifice for you or I have no needs, I have no wants, I'm sassy or I'm a doormat, then when people encounter real life black girls and women, I think that even unconsciously, they're picking up cues on how we are to be treated and how we should be existing in the world. And that matters. Right. And I think that relates a lot to your understandings of the imagination gap, which I never heard before reading this book. And you compare yes, it to the. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, for, thank you for that language. Because I think yeah. that language and that articulation is really important and having the vocabulary to be able to say like, oh, this is what I'm experiencing. It gives power to and it speaks truth to power. So people can say like, oh, the reason why we don't see all this 
or we don't see these characters being represented is because authors have an imagination gap in the ways that they want to portray characters. So thank you for talking about that. Um, Could you speak a little bit more about the imagination gap? Because I think when I was reading it initially, I thought it was, oh, this is this is the deficiency in like black young readers to or of having like imaginative possibilities in the ways that we understand life. But actually, it's more of like the ways that authors have an imagination gap. So could you speak a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't want people to walk away thinking that I was critiquing Black folks for not imagining um, new possibilities or new narratives. I mean, I have to quote Kevin Young's, uh, the great album here, forget cosmopolitanism. Let's explore the trapped Black mind as cosmos. I love that quote because think about, you know, thinking about how vast we are and how many multitudes we contain. And of course, I know that's not a Black author, but (laughs) um, thinking about all that we contain and what the barriers have been toward um, for Black people trying to publish, trying to get their stories on screens big and small, trying to um, keep their comics in print and circulation, I don't think that the gap is us. I do think that our society, our collective consciousness does not, cannot even imagine us outside of um, a few set places. So like during lectures, I've said, can you imagine if you thought that And I think I probably got this from one of the YouTubers. I love science YouTube, by the way. That's like what I do to like chill out. Like I pretend that, you know, I could someday be a theoretical physicist, right? So let me give you a comparison from that. So it's like, it's, it's as if we, it's as if we think that the only stories with black characters possible are the sizes of our pinky fingers, like, you know, one pinky finger where the real possibilities are as big as an auditorium. But we only have the stories and the characters that are about the volume of a test tube as compared to an auditorium. Like we don't have what we need. There are so many more stories that we need. But yet the industries um, that give us stories or, you know, publishing, um, Hollywood, both television and film, I think what they do is they were they see where the money is going. And then what they'll do is they'll green light more things like that and not invest in new things, which is why we have the sequel problem. So instead of getting new stories greenlit, then we're, you know, you'll get... Oh, I don't know how many Transformers we have. Um, I did enjoy some of the Fast and Furious theories. You know what I mean? So you'll you'll get seven or eight films in the same franchise. And yet we have a lot of young, brilliant Black filmmakers trying to break in to that industry to give us um, great stuff. Um, I'm sure you saw that there are Nigerian youth who are, because I'm not just thinking about Black folks here in the States, I'm thinking about us all over the planet, and because I love science fiction, eventually elsewhere in the galaxy. Um, You know, there are young Nigerians who are using their cell phones to create these brilliant science fiction films, like short films. 
So our youth have always had this capacity to dream, to play, to imagine, and to create. But everything in our society says that only certain stories matter. And these are the stories that get all the attention. And those are the stories that um, I am hoping that we see more diversity in and we see more representation in it and that we see try to, although it's going to be difficult for fantasy to decolonize, you know, we'll, we'll see um, anti-colonial narratives. So I'm, I, I'm very hopeful. I do think the, the two generations after mine um, can show us the way. And you are someone who's actively trying to fill that imagination gap and someone who contributes to the genre so yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. And congratulations on you said that you're you have a new young adult novel coming out soon. Um oh gosh, so- from your lips to <laughs> my book is um going to be submitted to my agent within the next 24 to 48 hours again. Wow. And I'm hoping to, you know, that he'll submit it um this fall. We're working on it. And what I wanted to do is to write a black American fantasy. So I wanted to um because one of the things I, I do in a new piece that's out in the lion and the unicorn is I wanted to talk about the African diaspora and fantasy because one of the moves I wanted to make with the dark fantastic that I know not all people appreciate it. It wasn't that I was trying to like, be like, okay, I'm special and Afrofuturism is not good enough for me. It's not that because I consider my work to be my creative work to be Afrofuturism. What I didn't like was that, you know, they all, there's always in the West, this impetus to put black people in a box. And so therefore they'll, will, you know, whenever other folks take a term, they'll find a term and then they'll throw us all into that one pile. But what I want to do is to show that we are Afrofuturism, but we're creating and influencing all the speculative genres, all of it. So we have Afrofuturism, we have Black horror, we have, um, you know, uh, the Black Fantastic, which I would argue Black Panther's first film was part of um, because of that world building. Um, And so one of the things I wanted to do in my creative work was was to really do something I see Kwame Mbalia doing with his new middle grade novel, Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky. He's writing a Black American fantasy. There are others who are creating Black American fantasy. I have to call their names, Danielle Clayton's The Bells. There's um, Elle McKinney's a Blade So Black, which is a retelling of Alice in Wonderland. So there are just so many. Um, I, and of course, we have Caribbean fantasy. Um, we have, uh, we're getting a variety of African fantasy. You know, Nettie Okorafor says that she does not do Afrofuturism. And some people have gotten upset. I'm not. I like that she's thinking um, theoretically about her work. And she says, well, here is how my work differs from Afrofuturism. I'm doing African futurism. And then Africa is a big place. And so a lot of the recent uh, young adult fantasies that we're getting in young adult literature in my field, they're coming from young Nigerian authors. Well, we're going to, that leaves, uh, I want more from each of those authors, make no mistake, they need to develop whole series and more. And then we have, what, 54, are there 54, 55 countries? 54, yeah. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. And so each of those countries can have, I want fantasy from, okay, you see where this is going. I have to go on, you know, I want black British fantasy. You know, we read Harry Potter and then we had Angelina Johnson, who was how I began this journey in the first place. I said, yes, there's a tall black girl in this book because in 1985, when I was a little girl, she wouldn't have been black in that story. But now I want Angelina Johnson to have her own book. So I want a story about a Black British witch. <laughs> so I want it all. And I think we can have it all. And I think the market can hold it all. And I want it for our children. But then I also want it for all children. I want all children to be reading about all kinds of lives, all kinds of possibilities, and all kinds of magical worlds. That's so important. Definitely. So what, in, con- in conclusion, um, what do you hope readers, young and old, will gain from The Dark Fantastic? What do you hope they take away and what do you, how do you hope they use what they learn from it and employ that in the, their lives? I hope that readers learn that there is a cycle in most of the science fiction, fantasy, fairy tales, and comics that we've been reading all our lives and that cycle um, means that Black people are often in the bo- on the bottom, just like we are in the real world. Um, but this is happening at the level of consciousness as we're reading these fairy tales at our very earliest stages. Um, I want readers to know that there is a way out and that as with every single movement in human history, young people are showing us the way. Young people are not only clapping back, speaking back to uh, negative representations, caricatures, stereotypes, problematic storylines in film and comics and books, but they are also creating brilliant new narratives that are not just fan fiction or fan work. They are creating stories beyond what we could ever imagine. And so I am absolutely hopeful for the future. And I unequivocally support Black creatives in the endeavor to create an emancipatory dark fantastic. Let's move toward a Black fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Thomas. Thank you.